and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 157. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So it's the final week of Women and Aliens History Month. We've had a great month of stories about aliens written and told by women. And this week, as the grand finale of sorts, we've got a full cast audio production for you folks. But first, a wee little drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called BDSM Bordello, and it comes to us from A. Bell. Mr. Bell says that he learned English mostly from Star Trek reruns. This resulted in a deep-seated ambivalence about whether he should attempt to bring peace and harmony to the universe or chase after space babes. Right now, peace and harmony appear more achievable, although this may begin to change some as extrasolar planets are discovered. I mean, you never know, right? Married, right, said the woman. Slinky dress, spike heels. Older than I prefer, but I wasn't complaining. Yes. Sure, a single guy would be drooling by now. You are all bastards. I spent hours on my hair. You look nice, I said. <laughs> nice. That's all you have to say? Nice? Useless bastards. I grabbed her and dragged her to bed. We only had a half hour left. After she left, the phone rang. She's rebooked for next Wednesday, said Millie. Thanks, I said. I need the money. I got a family to feed. Shazam! The things we do for our families, huh? And why is that? What are all those tiny, Beyonce-loving rotifers missing out on by being alone and asexual their whole lives? Well, one unifying theme in all of the stories this month has been family. Not just the traditional, conjugal, blood-related leave-it-to-beaver deal, but the codependent communal group, the clan of intimates and shared advocacy. Of course, the traditional nuclear family model is certainly still the norm. It's success proven time and 50% of the time again. But it's far from a one-size-fits-all model. Because it's not. Families adapt. They expand, grow, and evolve. Corporate bodies negotiate and merge. Hicks inbreed and mutate. White upper-crust socialites take in a Gary Coleman. Or an Emmanuel Lewis, I guess, if they run out of Gary Coleman's. Or an Alf if it's, you know, right before the holidays and you're totally desperate. You might be asking yourself right now, what are you talking about, Willis? Well, through Aliens, our stories this month have highlighted the awkward mayhem of dissimilar families becoming allied through something like marriage. We've seen how competing groups conquer from the outside and infiltrate culturally from the inside. We've seen that producing and nurturing a healthy family not only attracts mates, but also attracts votes. And we've seen how our pets fit into our families, or at least how they think they fit in. Community is something that we need in order to survive. Or just like rotifers, we dry up into a state of anhydrobiosis. And why? Because our families, however they manifest, are our links to the past and the future. And that leads us into this week's story, Brief Candle by Ruthanna Emrys. Ruthanna lives in Chicago with her wife, two neurotic cats, and a relatively stable boa constrictor. 
Her work has previously appeared in Analog and Strange Horizons, and she has a story appearing in the anthology Timelines, stories inspired by H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, to be published later this year by Northern Frights Press. Her blog can be found at ashneystrike.livejournal.com, which you'll find in our show notes. Miss Emerys has appeared on the Drabblecast before in episode 124 with her fantastic story, Ghosts and Simulations. You should go back there and check it out if you're new to the show. This week's story, Brief Candle, was written just for us, so this is its first appearance, and we think you're going to enjoy it. The story has a host of wonderful people involved, all of which are linked in our show notes. In no particular order, you'll hear the voices of Abby Hilton, Liz Mirzieski, Julie Hoverson, Monica Vasey, and Sarah Tolbert. The main narration is done by stage actress and voice artist Abby Craden. Abby's originally from New York, but after many years in Los Angeles, she calls the West Coast home. She's recently appeared in the docudrama Bloody Thursday for PBS. She's a resident artist with the classical company A Noise Within and a longtime company member of the Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum in Los Angeles. Her voice has been heard in numerous commercials such as American Airlines, Diet Coke, Hilton Hotels, Hoover Vacuums, and McDonald's to name a few. She also narrates audiobooks and does a young adult novel, Every Little Thing in the World, due out on April 6th. Check out her website at abbycraden.com. So, without further ado, Brief Candle by Ruthanna Emrys. The children washed up early this year. We raced down to the beach as soon as we heard. There was already a traffic jam coming out of the inland cells. We're lucky that our assistance on the submersible project means dune front property. Dari, always eager, threw herself into the water without even stopping to take off her pockets. She wasn't the first in either. My pockets are always filled with notes, so I left them well anchored on the beach. Cells may not survive without new children, but without our studies, survival is meaningless. Unencumbered, I swam out to meet our new arrivals. Ninety-nine years ago and longer, there was no race into the ocean, no sparring over the strongest children. Adults stood on the beach and sang them ashore, accepting whomever came closest as the will of the depths. Nowadays, first pick and last, go to those who swim the farthest and fastest. We sing our hymns later, when the new arrivals are safely inside, dried and ready to learn speech. I tucked my legs together and spread my arms, star-like, pulling them against my body to thrust myself forward. My breathing slits, used to dry air, strained to draw life from the water. I tasted salt. Lifting a dripping sensory arm, I saw that I had pulled past much of the crowd. A child clung to an algae raft, and I made for her swiftly. She seemed likely looking. Large, cranial bump, some muscle tone, sleek black skin with no sign of ridging from mutation or disease. She stretched her own sensory arms toward me, her focus clean and certain. Another adult shot to the surface beside me. I knew Anal, a researcher in the Valuru cell. 
We got along passably. At other times, their publications on neurological structure had been absolutely vital to ours on Sapiens' extension. Leave her alone, Anel sang. She's ours, our child. Don't be absurd, I sang. I just got here. The child pulled in her arms and began to keen. We need new children. Only one last year. Our project will fade without new blood. Everyone needs children, and there are plenty. More in our day than 18 years ago. But I saw this one, and I've chosen her. Kicking my legs, I surged between Anal and the child, rearing all my arms back to defend as might be needful. Anal looked like she might fight. More children rise that way. See? I twitched a finger, and she swung an arm to see. Not as fine, she sang. Not as healthy. What will you give me for this one? Give you? It was ridiculous. I had clearly arrived first, but if we fought, the child might be hurt, and I might lose. Anol was heavily muscled. Early data on the latest Sapiens extension trials come by in one month of the small moon, and I'll share it with you. That will do. Anol dove. I wrapped manipulator arms around the child, lifting her from the mat of buoyant seaweed. She clung to me, keening, fading to a calmer hum. Every year I am struck anew by how small they are, how smooth their skin before their scales separate into an adult's coarse pinions. I returned to shore slowly, mindful that the transition would be painful for her. As we reached the sandbar, I set the child carefully on her feet. She quavered, then rolled on her side, trying to keep a slit underwater. No, little one, come. Breathe in, it's safe. I pulled her to her feet once more, and she keened pitifully. The keening, as I knew it would, drew in air. She coughed and gasped and huddled against me, pressing herself to my dripping pinions. That's right. Breathe deep. Air is good. Air will make you wise. It was a good gathering day. Almost too good, for the Shuara cell grew by six infants, all keening and frightened and hungry night and day. They were as much as thirty adults might handle and still have time for our studies, never mind the unending cycle of community service and maintenance. I had never seen a cell grow by so many in a year. Perhaps I ought to have relented to an all. But I could not regret claiming Cain, the child I had retrieved, who passed her initial medical exam brilliantly and had a vocabulary of twenty words in the first week. I had promised Anal, so she was there, at our next intervention session, to see us all still sleepless and wired tense. She curled on the observation cushions with the youngest cell members, those sapient, four years and less, still not truly able to aid our studies. The youngest contributing adults bustled about, setting up equipment and preparing test strips. I narrated the process to the observers, deliberately neglecting the technicalities that Anal might hope for, and that the children already knew. Instead, I reviewed our foundations. The key insight comes from the Tuau cell's work on reproductive strategies. Aileen, explain. Aileen drew herself up on her front legs. She was a swift learner, 
Joao recognized that in most species, reproduction brings together genetic material from two complementary genders that act as moieties for child-rearing. But in people, reproduction is masked. It takes place between non-sapiens deep in the ocean. Far enough down that we can't observe, yes, sang Anal. Aileen, still young, twisted her arms at the interruption. And the Tuau analyzed our species' genetic material and hypothesized that all sapient people are non-fertile female analogs. Aileen took over again. And that when people get old and lose sapience, they go back into the water and are stuck as drones, protecting the fertile females. I stroked her arm. That's our best hypothesis. The important point is that the transition from sapient to drone is marked by complex hormonal changes. We believe that in the transition, our metabolic priorities ultimately shift and the brain metamorphoses to something functional, but without the energy demands of sapience. Our experimental treatments are designed to counteract these changes. Can you talk about the specific hormones involved? Sang Anal. I called on another child who showed every sign of an unfortunate slowness, and she stumbled through a half-accurate explanation. Some of the older ones tried to correct her, singing across one another and kept from a physical tussle only by my insistence. I would challenge Anal's ability to either follow an accurate path through that conversation or to support the claim that I'd deliberately kept the knowledge from her. The explanations are so clinical and to our youngest children must seem straightforward. They've had three years and less to watch our eldest as they begin to lose the path of arguments, as their words fade, as they snatch at food and hiss like the animals they are becoming. Six years earlier, I had followed my closest mentor over the dunes, watched her leave her name behind and slip back into the ocean. Three others had gone with her. I thought of what it must be like wondered how long my animal life would be after I returned to the water. Would I ever have moments of lucidity? Would I still notice beauty or dullness? Eighteen years sapient, and I didn't want to answer those questions. I devoted my life to these treatments, and for all their risk, I hoped that we could perfect them while I still had my name. Dari took blood samples from two members of each year. I am the experimental treatment subject for the 18s. She ran them through the analyzers one at a time, asking the youngest adults to identify where each stood in relation to normal levels for that age and to thresholds for transition. The very eldest, those of 19 and more, showed only minor improvements. This wasn't truly a surprise. The hormonal shifts had already started for them when we began using the current formulation. Still, their arms drooped. Ushi, 21, keened softly. Often, lately, I had caught her trailing off during verses, searching for words, and she must have known if she dared think on it. My hormones, though, were those of a 15-year-old, my third such reading, and I let my hopes stand fast. Is it selfish to love my own mind even while mourning my elders? It must be a selfishness felt on every coast, in every age. 
and all left the gallery and examined our equipment. But this is wonderful. You should publish as soon as possible and share this treatment with other cells. And who can blame her for her own selfishness? This is still an early trial, I told her. We may yet run awash in side effects, if the depths are cruel, or this may turn out to be a formulation that first appears to slow down an illness, if one can call the loss of sapience that touches everyone an illness, but then speeds it up. Many would take the risk. I would. It is our cell's project, our risk, by law and custom. Will you challenge me over our project as you did over our child? I know this song. I would have expected another of such a fine researcher in her own right. A child can only go to one cell. I trust the formula for your treatment is not so limited. Law, I repeated, and custom. When this turns up right, it will be the greatest advance for our species since the new vaccines. Now, most people survive a full, sapient adulthood. Imagine the breakthroughs we'll have when our greatest researchers work for 27 and 36 years. And imagine how it could go wrong if we bring this to the other cells in imperfect form. Have patience. You are younger than I. And she left. But I feared we hadn't heard the last verse of that song. Our work progressed smoothly for some time thereafter, though Anal and our fellow Voluru looked in from time to time. They asked prodding questions, some leading to new insights, for they truly are skilled in their field and begged us to reconsider. We reiterated the risks of sign effects and reversals, reminded them of past consequences of medical overconfidence. I hated the argument every time, for my own hope was growing. On the 19th anniversary of my own gathering day, my mind was clear and my blood samples unchanged. We continued our collaboration with the Tuau cell, repaying their contribution to our studies with aid on the submersible. Their intent was to create a waterproof automaton capable of surviving the deepest pressures and to support, through direct observation, the theories grown from their genetic discoveries. For the first time, we would be able to watch members of our own species before they became people, and after as well. I like the Tuau, where other cells stuck to one discipline. They followed their questions across boundaries with enthusiasm. They had devoted entire generations to learning the technicalities of new fields. They responded to setbacks with unstinting cheer, a relief sometimes after our own uncompromising rush and there had been many setbacks. The last three tests had ended in failure, along with vigils involving much intoxication. The party for a success would have to be spectacular to compete. The submersible was globular, somewhat smaller than a person, and cluttered with sensors and navigation equipment. I held it steady in its clamps while Tuau Karal tightened a joint. Then I stepped back into the camera field while she teased a picture from the feed. My twin image appeared on her screen. I twirled and watched it mirror me. Shall I test the medical sampler? She sang. Ouch. We had better, I suppose. 
The medical darts had been tricky work, and minimizing their sting hadn't been the highest priority. Miniaturizing the hormonal tests without getting error rates the size of dunes had been more of an issue. Touchy child. I was teasing. I wasn't. We need to know if it works. We'll test it in the wave tank later. In air, I promise you, it didn't hit anything. Not anything it was aimed at, anyway. We adjusted a few more settings. Coral and her cellmates adjusted, I held clamps. Finally, with much interweaving of arms, we lowered the submersible into the wave tank and put it through its paces. I did indeed immerse myself to test the sampler dart, and it did indeed sting. Readings coming in clearly. Congratulations, you're a healthy adult. A very healthy adult. Your work is going well. So far, I sang. Relax, I know protocol. We're none of us about to try and steal your immortality serum. At least until you're confident it's not poison. How soon will you know? Perhaps as little as a year until it's clear for wider testing. I almost added, depths willing, but we were stealing from the depths, and I didn't care to depend on their judgment. Perhaps longer, if there are adverse events. What a splendid thought, sang another Tuau. To be able to work like this for 81 years. In 81 years and less, you'd meet with an accident, you'd get sick, or a rock would fall on your head, but you'd die sapient. That's a joy. Cells would grow enormous, suggested another. Perhaps we could start new ones to keep from overflowing our homes. It would change everything, I agreed. But I'd rather be sapient to meet the challenges than lose my name to avoid them. You're not the only one, sang Dari. I hadn't noticed her arrival, and I pulled myself dripping from the tank to meet her. She twisted her arms together, leaving one sensor cluster-free, as if expecting an attack from behind. The Valuru have published your work. Karal dropped her tools. But that's absurd. It's your work. They can hardly pass it as their own. Not plagiarism, sang Dari. Not quite. They offer an outsider's description of our discoveries, as if they were reporting the contents of a tidal pool. It is against all custom. My limbs tingled, half numb. It didn't truly shock me that they'd considered such a thing. But civilized people leave such impulses in the water. The journal must have been as tempted as they were, or it would have refused them. Questioners were calling from all the coasts when I left. The Valuru have been giving them our contact. Coral hissed. That's a drop of honor, at least. It's not ready, I sang. There could still be side effects. Adverse responses. We'd best go home now and help explain that to the rest of the world. The following month of the Great Moon passed in a morass of questions. The children enjoyed the attention. In a year, working on our own timeline, the rest of us would have enjoyed it too. But we quickly grew tired of the politics. I explained standard medical methodologies 263 times. I counted and argued still more frequently about our refusal to make an exception this time. The Valuru view was by far the dominant one. As often as we were hailed as our generation's geniuses, we were reminded that every lost name of recent years could be laid in our beds. 
Anonymous donors left demographic reports on our doorstep, along with cruder materials. It was certain, I knew, that we would be required to share the formula soon. I woke shivering from dreams of plague and poison and answered more calls. Yet I was also in part relieved. If, as the results so far suggested, our treatment really worked, then the Valuru would have forced us to save lives. And the risks of early publication, well, those could be laid in their beds. The Tuau, when they had news, didn't call. They sent Karal, in person, to tell us they'd processed the first transmission packet from the submersible. She was entirely sober. We followed her home in a herd, adults and children together, and crowded around every screen in their labs. We sent the submersible in following the one who was called Semet, sang Karal. She drew in her arms. Semet had been a close mentor of hers and much beloved by the whole cell. We thought it would be easier to find the nesting grounds if we followed someone down. Semet would hardly have called it disrespectful. I sang gently. No, she would have been sorry to miss the data. In that spirit, then. As she played the video feeds, showed the readings from my sampler, it became clear what we were perceiving. Semet, after a few days hard swim, entering a deep valley full of our animal brethren, challenged by outlying guards, males according to the sampler, their blood thick with the unfamiliar hormones and allowed to pass inward, fertile females tending children younger than we had ever known, and others gravid with unborn offspring. The room broke into singing and argument while I pulled inward. Not drones, then. Not expendable protectors of the breeding grounds. The children didn't come from anonymous non-sapiens in the depths. They came from us. If we hoarded our names, eventually there would be no more children. Cain still played in a corner with the other one-years. A single arm twisted toward the worried adults, but otherwise unconcerned. I realized that she could have been born of my mentor's body. And if not of hers, then of someone else's. Someone who had once been a person, whose research I had read or whose cell I had collaborated with. Karal made her way around the crowd and draped arms across my body. I leaned against her appreciating the warm touch even as I sought the familiar rhythm of data and hypothesis. It makes no sense as an adaptation, I sang. Why expose potential breeders to the dangers of land life? She shrugged, arms rising and falling against my back. Perhaps land-dwelling sapiens are better at child-rearing. Perhaps the dangers here leave only the fittest to breed. They, we, appear to have litters, so even if just a few return to the water, the species goes on. And if no one returns to the water? Everyone has been so pleased by the potential of our treatments. Everyone has been thinking of what they could do with the extra time. And not everyone needs to go back, sang Karal thoughtfully. The number who used to die of plague before the vaccines? That's probably safe to give the treatment to, or we could give everyone a few extra years and then let them go. Dari joined us, twining her arms around ours. By now I couldn't see the screen, 
My sensors' clusters were entirely blocked by skin and pockets. I didn't complain. Perhaps there ought to be some sort of award, she suggested. Extra years for the best researchers. Karal sang. Suppose that intelligence has some genetic component. Suppose... Oh, I perceive. Perhaps we should give immortality only to the most foolish among us, I asked. I think I might earn my extra years. Watching Cain, I could not reconcile my joy in her new life with my rejection of the sacrifice required to create her. If I were not to give up my name, to prove her existence worth the cost, then someone else must. The strife among the cells from deciding how that cost should be spread might be worse than the cost itself. Dari held me more tightly, as one might a newly landed child. Breathe. I inhaled the breath, sweet and dry against my slits, and gave the traditional response. Air will make you wise. For everyone's sake, I hoped it was true. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Neat ideas in that one. Gets the noggin a quiver in only a way that cool aliens can manage. Special thanks to everyone involved, including Big Anglovich from the Doonstief's eight-year-old daughter, uh, Small Anglovich, who I forgot to include in the credits before the story. Let's do some listener story feedback. Our last trifecta special, the Anthropomorphism special, back in episode 152, was made up of three stories. The Existential Lizard by Alistair Stewart, which was about a woman visiting her brother, a raptor, one of the ruling class in this particular alternate history. Cod Philosophy by Stephanie Campisi, which was about a fish with self-esteem problems that wanted to be eaten. And Monkeys Imitating Humans Imitating Monkeys by Nancy Stebbins, which was about a PI tracking and investigating a missing monkey case. Dreamrock said, The existential lizard was stunningly great. Tea and savagery indeed. Tooth and claw and fur and fire. Really great prose and a really great story. Feels like it simultaneously is super serious and self-parody. Is Maeve really justified, or is she just one of the last survivors of the previous ruling families who's taking a sort of frivolous revenge? Might be reading too much into that part, but really great story anyways. Monkeys imitating humans imitating monkeys was really heartwarming. The wife reminded me of a different, insane Jeffrey Goines from 12 Monkeys. I didn't get a strong impression from the husband, but we had enough to let us know that the man and his monkey were going to be pretty happy together. Phenopath said, Cod philosophy was my favorite, definitely my cup of tea. Surrealism combined with a relentless downbeat humor. I also enjoyed Monkeys Imitating Humans Imitating Monkeys for both the title and the film noir pastiche. There were some mirthful lines. Are you going out? No, I'm agoraphobic. Unfortunately, the existential lizard I was not feeling. I'm not sure why the lizard was existential, and I was distinctly confused about the relationships between the characters. How'd you feel about this week's story? We invite all comments, whether they be kudos, critical, or completely unrelated in our discussion forums, linked off of our main page, of course. It's a good place to be. Hey, our kick-ass donor of the week this week is... Emily Smith. 
Emily's from the Washington, D.C. area. She does data entry for a living, which gives her a lot of time to listen to podcasts. In her free time, she likes to read pretty much every book she can get her hands on and go to concerts, especially classical concerts and operas. Once a year or so, Emily travels, usually to Europe or Israel where she has friends, or Panama where she has family. And coolest of all, she donates to the Drabblecast, a podcast that she gets for free anyways, keeping us pure, free of annoying ads and on the air. We appreciate the support, Emily. Way to show those MBA grads who said a business model like this would never work. Well, guess what, smarty pantses? It barely does. So there. If you're a fan of the show, hook a brother up. Each episode of the Drabblecast costs us anywhere between 75 and 250 bucks usually, not to mention the crap ton of volunteer hours. Your donation goes to paying a writer for his or her creativity. And what better way to spend a few bucks, huh? So you probably know this already. We do a weekly 100 character story contest run from our discussion forums. We call the little fellas Twabbles or Twabbles, Twitter-sized microfiction that we publish each week from our Twitter feed. The competition's pretty tough these days. We've got a lot of 100-character story phenoms running around that area of the forum. And this week was a tie, because one great story was derivative of another great story. And together, they made a glorious pair. Congrats to Nevermore66 for his story, Purple Unorthodox, and Algernon Sidney is Dead for his 100-character sequel. He holds out a choice. Two pills, red and blue. Watching myself in his shades, I swallow both, then I blow all their minds. We used to offer these in pill form, Morpheus griped. But after this one joker, they now only come in suppositories. Ooh, welcome to the real world, Neo. Try to relax. This will feel a little weird. So that's our show, folks. Hope you enjoyed. This isn't the two-hour cell, you know. You can share these findings with anyone and everyone. Just don't change it or charge for it. The show is produced under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Special thanks to this week's episode artist, Jan Dennison. Also the talent behind last week's art. Jan makes all sorts of cool art, two-dimensional, three-dimensional, a little bit of 4D here and there, and she sells it over at jannypie.com. Go check it out. Oh yeah, and if you haven't noticed, in addition to stories and readings, all of our artwork has been done by women this month, too. And all of my laundry. So, hey, nobody can accuse us of not being progressive and forward-thinking. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that air makes us wise. Place was loaded, and noise filled the room like the smoke. And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all slurred when spoke. Shouldn't, couldn't. Oh, God, Doctor. What's wrong with my wife? Is something wrong? Don't worry, son. She's just having contractions. Don't. Hey!